Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Hey, great day, everyone. It's CJ. Hopefully, everyone's having a fantastic day so far. It is Wednesday, December the 28th, and very excited to be delivering our end-of-the-year show. It is the Rogue News 2022 recap, and then also uh, 2023, the forecast, the look ahead. Very excited and honored to be hosting. V will be joining here shortly, uh, but very excited to be hosting today. Just a, a massive amount of talent. And I'm going to share the links. They are in the descriptions uh, to the video. So uh, today we have uh, Tim Kirby with Tim Kirby Russia Hardcore. You can check him out on his Telegram. Like I said, the links mm -hmm. are in the description, so you can make sure to check out. And my uh, Telegram is even right below me right now for the entire episode because I <laughs> want people to join up. So there you go. So there you have it firsthand. And also uh, we have Matthew Eric with us with the Canadian Patriot Review. Um, several other different links to host in there, but I think that's his primary site to check out his books and all that kind of good stuff. And our, also with us is returning guest Martin Seif. Uh, Martin, you can follow him over on his Twitter handle, which is over at, at Martin Seif. And then we also will have joining here shortly as Alex Craner will be joining us. I have his Substack link. And then all of you are very familiar with the Be the Gorilla at roguenews.com. Uh, with that being said, said gentlemen, uh, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Um, it's an honor and a pleasure to be hosting uh, this this roundtable. Well, and we're glad to be here. I think. Uh, Agreed. Over there, you, Matt. I, I I concur. I concur. You guys. Yeah. Also, want to uh, uh, thank the people in the the, the chat room. Uh, very lively crowd. Please do us a favor. Make sure to share the live stream. It's heading into all. There should be a lot of people right now that should be, should be tuning in live. Uh, but gentlemen, I thought we could kick things off just talking a little bit around uh, 2022, um, perhaps maybe some of the uh, the moments and in, in throughout the year that were probably the most instrumental in terms of shaping the course of the year. I know probably everyone's probably going to say Ukraine. <laughs> there were a few other things, but I thought we could just kind of go around the horn if you want. And also maybe if there's other additional links or something you want to you want to talk about what your work is. Let's go for it. So let's start with Tim and then we'll just go around the horn. So Tim, go oh, for it. Yay. All right. Well, I can tell you one thing about a year ago, I believe it would be January 10th. And I don't quote me on that. I could be off by a couple of days. That was the day when the United States officially rejected 
all of Russia's proposals to uh, renegotiate uh, basically the balance of uh, security within Europe. Essentially, Russia kind of wanted to move things back to something like NATO's uh, sort of organizational level at about 1997. And Washington said no to absolutely every demand and concern the Russians had, which marched us into war about a month after that. So I definitely think that the complete and total rejection of Russia's offer without even any willingness to negotiate was definitely the uh, uh, sort of big thing if we're going to talk about uh, year in review, which led to the special military operation, which is essentially uh, the event uh, on uh, February 24th, uh, one day after Men's Day in Russia, uh, which many people might not know on the, uh, the 23rd, we celebrate all men in Russia, especially men who've uh, done their uh, service. Uh, so, who knows if that was by um, coincidence or by plan or maybe a bit of both. Uh, but uh, on the 24th, that's when the special military operation started. And uh, two things happened. One, uh, the uh, tanks of the uh, special military operation uh, were somehow able to kill uh, the KUF or other diseases, which you're not supposed to mention on YouTube. So the KUF died. Uh, that was number one. And um, uh, number two, uh, the monopolar world order possibly died as well. Uh, so uh, Russia's tanks um, have um, shells designed to fight diseases and monopolarity in geopolitics. So uh, <laughs> very impressive. Uh, and I think that that was sort of like going like back in time exactly one year. Uh, I have a whole little list of events that are uh, for Russia, but I don't want to dominate the whole hour here. But I do think that those are events that have changed the lives of people maybe over the entire world. Probably. Yeah. Yep. Very good, very good. And want to welcome uh, the gorillas in the house. So welcome, welcome, V. Uh, hey, good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Good evening. Good morning. Howdy, Eddie. Good to see all of you. Yeah, so uh, we kick things off, V, by talking about 2022, some of the events that unfolded that really shaped the course of the year, kind of going around the horn a little bit. Um, and then we're going to go to Matt, Martin, and then we'll go back to you, V. Is that cool? Sure. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Okay, go for it, Matthew. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I completely concur. I mean, Tim really nailed it in terms of the, the nerve center, I think, of the thrust of history uh, that is being shaped or that has been shaped, especially in the 20, in 2022, and that is going to continue to reverberate through 2023 and beyond. I think, yeah, most definitely I would reemphasize the importance of the of the consolidation of the multipolar alliance. And I mean, you know, just a couple of weeks before the, the military intervention was begun into Ukraine, um, it's very important to, to hold in mind that the new era of, of economic or economic relations in the new era, that whole 5000 uh, word uh, program was signed by the leadership of both Russia and China together. Um, let me get the exact uh, wording of that. It was the um, uh, joint statement of the Republic, the Russian Federation and People's Republic of China on the international international relations entering a new era. And, uh, and this really outlined the foundation upon which a new viable uh, economic and ultimately security architecture would be continuously based. And this is obviously something many years in the coming. It's been building up, building up laterally, subtly, um, but it's really, it, it doubled down fast as it became more and more evident that there wasn't all the time in the world before the financial blowout of the West uh, occurs. So in the last eight months, what we've seen coming out of 
the consolidation of the uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization has been very, very important. New members have expressed their intention to join. New members have joined already. Many rivals have been brought online onto a, a common page regarding, you know, obviously Pakistan and India became members in, I think it was 2019. But now you have nations like Saudi Arabia increasingly stepping on board. Uh, Egypt has expressed their intention to be on board pretty soon, too. Uh, Algeria and this a lot of these same countries are all also looking at joining the BRICS plus the, the you know which is obviously it's an institution which is uh, an underdefined process obviously it had some questionable origins back in 2001 2002 uh, with some Goldman Sachs uh, brainiacs who had an idea of creating a new uh, bubble uh, with a with a weak link in the form of the Brazilian uh, biofuels bubble and Banco Santander, which was a, a major weak link in the uh, in the game. But increasingly, what we've seen in the last, especially five, six years, has been a uh, much, much more viable idea of physical economic development, which is not tied to speculative financial instruments that could blow up in your face at any moment. There's the actual orientation towards building real things in the real world that define the value of, of the behavior of money, the purpose of business, of investments, the Belt and Road Initiative is a big one, which obviously is giving vitality to a lot of nations, including Gulf states, which are increasingly jumping out of the unipolar cage where they don't really see that they have much of a viable future and are ultimately, and I think Saudi Arabia has realized that they are much more disposable than, uh, and they're not as essential in the long-term strategy as they once thought they would be or what as what they were once promised. One thing that always mystifies me is why do so many small countries think that they're, that they can be naughty and misbehave and that they won't get it? Yeah. I mean, even yes, complete exactly. and total submission to the sort exactly. of Davos, World Economic Forum, New World Order crowd, total submission is not even enough. Exactly. Yeah, just hubris and arrogance. So anyway... Exactly. It's I think a lot of a lot of slaps of reality are hitting a lot of smaller countries that have that have been confused about their what their long term interests actually are. And and that's good because there, again, is increasingly a viable ship that can float. Sergey Glaziev is playing a key role in that. So I think that these sorts of things are really shaping uh, the, the coming years ahead. And um, yeah, that's what I would just throw out there. Yeah. Thank thank you for that, Matt. We also want to welcome Alex Craner to our, our roundtable live stream. Hey. So so welcome, Alex. Appreciate you joining, sir. Thank you. Apologies for being a little bit late. But... Alex, you're not late. You're always fashionably on time. <laughs> <laughs> now, yes, one event you. that also happened during the last year, the problem is I forgot the day and the month of this one, but the Samarkand Summit, which ties mm. into what Matt was saying, when essentially the entire multipolar world had that one very big meeting <clears throat> in Uzbekistan. And uh, I think that a lot of... Uh, <clears throat> maybe that was sort of the finalization of a lot of planning and negotiating between the Russians and the Chinese and a lot of different parties uh, all came together uh, because I think that that summit wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the, uh, for the war. I think it really, you know, changed everything. And that uh, is essentially uh, they pro probably the, what was really agreed with there. We're only going to maybe see the fruits of that in the next few years. So another yeah. event we should not ignore for this year. Absolutely. Uh, so, Alex, we're talking a little bit around uh, 2022, recapping the the year, the the events that really shaped the course of the year, going around the the, the table, if you will. Um, so, so Martin's next. We'll go to V, and then we'll we'll go to Alex. So, Martin, you're up. Okay. Well, I'm in full agreement with everything that the guys have said so far, uh, uh, especially obviously Tim and Matt. Ukraine is the driving force. 
uh, uh, it's driving history. And because of the way we are reacting to it and pouring gasoline on the flaming fire we ourselves set off, it's, go it's getting worse and it is threatening world peace and the survival of human civilization, especially across the entire northern hemisphere of the globe. It is that bad. This is point one. Point two, uh, Matt made a very interesting set of points that I, I want to flesh out a, a bit more. Where are these new countries joining the SCO? They are not in Eurasia anymore. All the Eurasian major nations have already signed up. We are now looking at Saudi Arabia, yeah. the most financially important nation in the Middle East and the heart of Islam, uh, the, the guardian of the holy places of Islam. And we are looking at Egypt. Uh, these nations since 1975, since the assassination of King Faisal, very specifically in 1975, that was the key event that for 47 years uh, tilted the United States into uh, tilted the, the, the Middle East nations under the hegemony totally of the United States. And there have been endless wars and bloodbaths and destabilizations across the region since then. There have been areas of enormous growth too, of course, in Saudi Arabia and in the Gulf, especially the partial recovery of Lebanon. But we've had the, uh, the invasion of destruction of Iraq. We've had the destruction of Syria. Now we see the continuing destruction of Yemen, the destruction of Libya, the list goes on. And uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, for his own reasons, which are very evident to all, does not like or trust the President of the United States, Joe Biden. Of course, it goes deeper than that. He sees the whole thrust of American policy. But basically, the Saudis have always even to a larger degree than other nations, emphasize the importance of interpersonal relationships and trust. This is true among Israelis as well as Arabs in the Middle East. You cannot understand 40 years of peace between Syria and Israel without understanding that Yitzhak Rabin and Hafez Assad of Syria privately trusted and respected each other and worked together both against American initiatives they both distrusted, but much more especially against Yasser Arafat, who they both loathed. And, of course, Rabin was assassinated precisely when he was looking to finalize the long, then 25 years old, de facto peace between Israel and Syria. And he was assassinated, very conveniently, of course, before he could push that through. Now, what we see now is... Mohammed bin Salman, the son of the king of Saudi Arabia, the real ruler and very definite ruler of Saudi Arabia, does not trust Joe Biden as far as he can throw him. How shocking of the leader of Saudi Arabia. Mm. And the, uh, the, the general uh, uh, president of Egypt feels exactly the same way. They both have reason to. But these are the two nations that guarantee stability, such as it is, and security and financial framework of the entire Middle East. And it isn't Israel they have the problem with. It certainly is not Russia or China. It is the United States of America. And of course, they have no faith in Europe to act as any kind of counterpoint or counterweight to this. Because as we've seen again and again, in geopolitical terms and moral force, Europe is useless. America has totally castrated Europe, has totally castrated the leaderships of Europe. And now that brings me to my 
one other point, which is, again, a knockoff point from Ukraine. Tim is absolutely right. And so, of course, are you, Matt? Ukraine drives history. And what it is driving now is the deindustrialization and collapse of Western European society at the, at the behest, not of Russia, not of Saudi Arabia and the Arabs, not of China, but at the behest of the United States. Part of this appears to be deliberate. I think also, and I'd be interested to, to seeing the assessments of my colleagues here, I think follow this much more closely than I do, how much of it is, as I personally believe, also the result of mad science, false science, crackpot ideas, what Matt would call the Malthusian delusions, the hatred and war against science, rationality, and against advanced technology, because we have a knock-on effect here. And I do believe that even the so-called geniuses in their own imagination who are bringing this to pass, do not, because they three quarters believe their own lies, do not realize the full consequences of this, of what they are doing. Yeah. But we are heading back to firewood economies in Germany and possibly in France, too, and northern Italy. We are heading towards firewood economies. And yeah. when that happens, there's going to be an awful lot more carbon in the air. And there's going to be a lot less trees left around because they're going to have to be burned to keep people warm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Going back yeah. to very basic things here. Yeah. Very well uh, said, Martin. appreciate that. Uh, v, you're up, please. <clears throat> Uh, great analysis by everybody here. Uh, I want to thank all you guys first and foremost for being on the program. Uh, we nail. I mean, I, I think everybody on the panel nails it correctly. The West is in a terminal. Uh, it, it's in a terminal velocity, and I've said this often, many times. It's in a terminal velocity that it simply cannot escape from. And unless something miraculous happens, which I'm not holding my breath for, yeah. there's there's a terrible. We're entering a, a period of calamity, the likes of which Western civilization has not seen since the Dark Ages. And I think that's exactly Martin hit it on the, uh, the nail on the head when he said we're heading to a firewood economy. He's absolutely right. I've seen videos coming out of uh, out of uh, out of Switzerland, miles and miles and miles of chopped firewood on roadsides that you can go as a family person, get uh, some firewood for your family in order to keep yourself warm this summer. Poland is lining up to get, you know, uh, coal for the winter, and there's a coal shortage over there. So th it's incredible to see this. And the question becomes, how much further suffering will the ideologues in the EU push their populations? How much further suffering are they willing to put their populations through just so that they can be the, the lapdogs of Washington? That's the whole entire thing here. And the U.S., I mean, it's, it's rightfully so for Ben Salman, for MBS not to trust the United States, for the president of Egypt not to trust the United States. I think Sergey Lavrov said it best. The United States is agreement non-capable. If I was a country, I would not trust the U.S. as far as I could even throw the U.S. It, 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 how do you deal with a nation like this that is right now has told its allies, quote-unquote allies, right, to get into a suicide pack and kill themselves. It's incredible to see this, CJ. I really, it, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Alex, your thoughts on 2022 and the most the events that really shaped the course of the year. Go for it, sir. Well, obviously, the war in Ukraine is, the I think, the, the biggest event uh, that we've seen and I think is going to prove the event with such far-reaching consequences that uh, we can only guess at the moment, but I, I see as a as a very real possibility an, an unraveling an unraveling of the uh, of the European Union. 
Um, I think that the way the Russians are conducting the conflict is going to put uh, the EU on the defensive, inevitably. Uh, there's a very high likelihood that um, Russia will uh, sweep through Ukraine, uh, take over the Black Sea coast, uh, including Odessa, that they will uh, move uh, to the borders of the Dnieper, and that they will leave um, the Western Ukraine uh, kind of as a, as a trap for Poland. Um, which, which apparently a lot of a lot of people in the Polish leadership are extremely anxious to to to, to take the bait. Yes. Um, very probably, what they will find there is a concentration of uh, Ukrainian Banderists, uh, people who uh, hate the Poles only slightly less than they hate the Russians, or maybe not even slightly less. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it works. <laughs> you know, and. Uh, I think that Poland will be um, supported in this misadventure by uh, their British allies and by the, yes. by the Americans. Another step towards uh, detonating a broader conflict in Europe and weakening Europe even further. So it works for the Brits, it works for the Americans. So that's uh, that much more likely to happen. I think that the Germans uh will find themselves are already finding themselves with only one european power that they can work with and that they can actually uh be friends and allies with and that's russia because we've seen what their allies the united states and the uk have done to germany the uh, you know my contention has been that the attack on north north stream two pipelines uh, was a work uh, where the top of the sus top top of the list of suspects is the UK, uh, United States, Poland, and Ukraine, probably in that order. But you know the the, the UK being maybe one of the most enthusiastic uh, uh, sides that's formulating formulating the strategy and the agenda. So Europe is headed for something of a perfect storm. This is happening amidst a general economic crisis. Um, the mood of the population is extremely sour. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an annual poll conducted by Ipsos, which, uh, which asks some 24,000 people in 36 nations how optimistic they feel about the future and questions like that, you know, economic problems, social problems, employment, inflation, all of those things. And normally, you know, when they ask people in various countries uh, whether they feel that the next year will be better than the, than the last year, uh, something on average between 75 and 80% of people always think that the next year will be uh, better. Well, uh, this this series has dropped by 12 percentage points hmm. uh which is which looks just like a like a collapse on on, on the on the chart you exactly. know? and and these this, this is dry tinder for social uprising and the most pessimistic people are people are people in the northwest europe you know uh, belgium france germany and so forth so there's going to be 
very likely social uprisings in Europe. There's probably going to be uh, some kind of a, some kind of a repression uh, response uh, on the side of the authorities. I don't know how they're going to do it or, or what they're going to do because I see that they try a lot of gambits that ultimately don't work out. Nothing happens, you know, uh, with uh, with with these pandemics. They keep trying to enshrine uh, lockdowns, uh, mask wearing for, you know, essentially forever. Uh, and then, you know, nothing happens, Not just nothing happens. So I think that their ability to mobilize their troops to, to keep this juggernaut rolling on has kind of petered out, petered out. I don't have a different explanation for it, but you know, like they, uh, the Germans wanted to pass through the par parliament uh, uh, the obligation of wearing masks. They wanted to make it something of a, of a permanent thing that goes from, from um, I think October through March every year. Yeah, that's correct. Forever. And that failed. In Ger in in France, they wanted to um, extend the uh, electronic uh, surveil. You know the pat the the QR code passes for for people who are vaccinated and compliant. Yeah, the vaccine passports. Yeah, the vaccine passports that failed. It, that failed in the in the in the French Parliament. So I think that their uh, capability to manage the situation has deteriorated very considerably. But you know they have millions of uh, Ukrainian refugees coming their way. Uh, they're mostly mostly coming to Poland and Germany. This is going to be a huge destabilizing factor because those nations are already coming apart at the seams with the with the with the uh, with the immigrants that are already uh, here, mm. and so I think that the uh, the outcome is going to be very hard to predict. But I I don't see the end the light at the end of the tunnel, and I think that we're headed for very very turbulent waters. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd also like to mention something that I came across uh, two days ago, a quote, and I asked Matt uh, yesterday to help me out because there was a quote by Mao Zedong uh, from 1971 that somebody posted on the internet. And, and then another uh, Twitter follower confirmed that it was true. I wanted a second opinion, so I asked Matt, but I have to read out this, this quote to you because I think it's extremely interesting. So Mao Zedong in 1971, so 51 years ago, said the, as follows, in another 50 years, China will be very strong. America will most likely be very envious and restless, but it doesn't dare attack China. It will research germ contamination instead. After it finishes with this unconscionable deed, it will self-destruct. Now, I hope and pray. Prophetic. So you're saying that's that's you confirmed real by someone who actually speaks Chinese. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that was all over the Russian internet. I kind of yeah. thought it was fake, but I didn't have the means to check it. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, our, our our friend uh, uh, Dr. Quan Le had a had a review of it as well. He confirmed, oh. and but he said that there was one small adjustment that that wasn't properly translated, which is that he said uh, where it says it will self-destruct, it should be after the imperialists finish with this unconscionable deed, they will self-instruct, uh, self-destruct. Oh, wow. Which yeah. changes the flavor a little bit. It's not just the U.S. It's something more than a nation. It's the imperialist. It, it's the cabal. Yeah, yeah it makes it, 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 it gives you a little bit more of a concise idea of it, yeah. That's prophetic. 
Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's, I, I I find this amazing, and I also I also thought at first it was a fake. Yeah, but it was very quick, quickly confirmed that the the gist of the message is correct, and I'm very glad for the correction that Matt got, because I was going to say I hope and pray that Mao Zedong was wrong about the United States because I think that the um, preservation of the United States as a union is absolutely critical to the future of humanity. Uh, but absolutely, the cabal has to has to fall and self destruct, and it, it feels like they're doing the best that they can to actually fulfill this prophecy. Yes, because they've they've gone off the deep end. They are they're just like I, I don't even find words to describe. This is just the lunatics uh, in charge of the asylum. Alex, thank you for that. Martin, you had uh, raised your hand for a yes, moment. Yes, a couple of points. First of all, I am clearly the, by far the oldest one here. And I am old enough to remember that Mao's comments in 1971 are accurate, were widely disseminated by official Chinese news media at that time. I uh, could not confirm the precise details. I have no doubt that the precise... Uh, definitions, corrections that Matt quoted are necessary and accurate. But I can testify that these comments were, were what no one around the world, I heard them too, I was, I was too young to be in the news business, but I was supposedly of a sentient age. And I can testify that they were widely reported at the time in 1971, during the era of the Vietnam War. Remember also, this was when the Chinese still feared the United States before the Nixon-Kissinger outreach to China to try and play off China against the Soviet Union, which they succeeded in doing. The one other person I will quote, believe it not, in support of all this was a famous comment that Henry Kissinger, of all people, I believe made to King Faisal not too long before King Faisal's tragic and unforeseeable end in 1975, killed by a nephew who'd spent a lot of time in California where he was exposed to and susceptible, of course, some very potentially interesting influences. But Kissinger, uh, when accused of being paranoid, a paranoid Jew, and of course, it, it, uh, Henry Kissinger was never an observant Jew in the slightest. Uh, in his later life, he, he, he used the identity a little bit when it suited him, but to him it was an irrelevant thing. Uh, but Kissinger said, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to kill you. The problem is that our leaderships over the past 70 or 80 years have turned the rest of the world, especially nuclear powers like Russia and China and Iran, we have worked overtime to make them paranoid because we have been trying to destabilize them or destroy the countries or kill them. And as Matt, one last point, as Matt knows, uh, largely through my creative exposure to Matt and his colleagues, I've been reassessing over the past couple of years the 19th century history of the spread of open markets and so-called democracy as a screen or excuse for empire around the world. And from South America, across Africa, across all of Russia, India, and China, and eventually, and last of all, the Middle East, this was deliberately used to, to completely fragment and destroy previously stable societies, bringing generations of suffering on, on tens of billions of human beings over the past 200 years. And the scale of this and the systematic 
nature of it is actually a matter of public record, but nobody looks at it. It's not even been suppressed. People have just conditioned not to look at it and draw the obvious conclusions. And I'd just like to jump in and say, tying into what um, uh, Alex was uh, saying and V and and just Martin, too, about a sort of combination with the leadership of the West. You can't make a deal with them. And they may also be insane. Uh, one huge event that just happened recently was the Merkel admission that Angela Merkel admitted that they never had any intention of following the Minsk Accords. Unbelievable. Exactly. That they knew where this was heading. The, she admitted that the entire Western leadership who was involved in this absolutely knew that this was heading to a war with a nuclear power. That's uh that that's our mad that's madness of the year award, possibly. I don't know, we have to like create up like a poll or something. <laughs> but it's it's a it's a contender. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very, very yeah, awesome. Uh, gentlemen, and I'll open it up to anyone that wants to, what are the off-roads, what are the off-ramps uh, with, with Ukraine? Any thoughts on does Zelensky uh, stay in power? Are there any off-roads or off-ramps that potentially could happen uh, to save the existence of Ukraine as, as it is currently? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. That's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you want to, uh, you know what? I'm going to reserve actually my commentary. I mean, I'm curious to see. Well, what, uh, if, what, if, if I may, yeah. I, I think that in light of everything that we've, we've discussed now, and in light of the fact that the West is agreement and treaty incapable, I think that there's no way that Ukraine is going to be preserved in its current okay, form. Uh, because, you know, the Russians cannot sit at the table with their Western counterparts. And obviously there's no point discussing with Ukraine when the real uh, uh, real power is, is, is in, in London and in Washington. Uh, they, cannot, they cannot iron out a treaty um, with an unreliable uh, partner. And so they, they have no choice but to go all the way. And I don't just mean all the way in their conflict with Ukraine, but all the way in their conflict with the cabal that's running this show. They have to completely destroy them. And I think, you know, this is obviously not an explicitly stated goal because I suppose you can't come out and say this. Um, but if, it, it seems to me by the pattern of behavior of the Russian leadership and of the of the Chinese leadership that this is what they're aiming at. You know, we had the we had the, you know, uh, this is not so recent. I think it was a year or two ago, about a year ago. I think that the president Macri of Argentina went to Beijing, and he got an ex explicit statement of support for Argentina's uh, intention to ultimately. Uh, regain control of the Falkland Islands, which is a strike at the UK. At the UK. Uh, we have apparently some diplomatic overtures between Russia and Scotland. We had um, yesterday uh, Dmitry Medvedev, which uh, he, he offered his 10 predictions for 2023 on in a Twitter thread, which which felt a lot like a like a trolling thread, but among other things, he said Look, that looked very real to me. 
I agree with most of his sentiments. Now, that's yeah, exactly. But there were, you know, there are there are a few very very surprising uh, predictions in it. One of them being that uh, that the UK will rejoin the EU and that uh, Northern Ireland will uh, reintegrate with Ireland proper. I, you know, like I I can't that's say that I, I have any of this on my radar, but it wouldn't surprise me that, you know. The forces in this world that are fighting against the cabal, and I, I don't know exactly who they are apart from uh, uh, Russian and Chinese leadership. I suspect that they are that they are uh, power factions uh, within Europe, within the United States, within Germany that are on the on that same side. Uh, that may be working on this, and that you know they they may be talking to each other. I, I don't know. You know they don't they don't uh, write to me, but. Uh, I'm just kind of watching the developments, and uh, these developments seems seem very very interesting to me. And so I would, you know, in the same way that uh, Mao Zedong's uh, prophecy from 1971 might have sounded uh, off the wall and uh, loopy, uh, in that same way, yesterday's Twitter thread by Dmitry Medvedev might sound loopy to to many people. But by this point, I have to keep an open mind and think, is Mitri Medvedev simply trolling uh, the, you know, the Western establishment or is there something more to these uh, predictions? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I think uh, there could be a lot more. And the one thing is uh, we always have to remember that uh, Russia, or at least the Russian leadership, definitely likes to keep those cards close to its chest. And uh, when they come out with information like this, they do so for a reason. If you remember back about four or five years, uh, right when things were starting to get really bad in the Donbass, and it sort of became, I think, evident that this was going to, for the for the Russian side, that this was not going anywhere. You know that Putin said that the CIA killed Kennedy in yeah. an interview? <laughs> like, sometimes I think that when they release their little tidbits of information, they can sometimes do that almost like a... Uh, Sort of like how dogs nip at each other before a fight, before a real bite. Uh, so there could be um, this time, although Medvedev likes to just troll people, I think this time we could say that maybe three out of those ten points are really based on something, on information they have. That would be my guess. Go ahead, Martin. Thank you. Uh, I enter the points Medvedev made from the area which comes naturally to me, the Irish dimension. And uh, in each of these cases, these trends are real. Medvedev is right to say them. But I think former President Medvedev is making the same, Not it's not even a full error, but from his perspective, optimistic, from a Western perspective, pessimistic, obviously. But every one of these trends is real, and most of them are irreversible, but we will not see them come to pass immediately in the next six months, certainly, and probably not in the, ne in the, in the next year. For example, the, the Britain and Europe. Britain cannot exist outside Europe. And at the same time, British politics have been so fractured by the insane Brexit debate that it is politically impossible for the English to swallow their pride and go back into Europe directly. Nevertheless, Boris Johnson is gone. That supreme idiot Liz Truss is also gone. The man we have now is an international banker, an Indian international banker running Britain. 
And no doubt he has to listen to what the City of London says. But he's not the same mad enthusiast. He will go along with Ukraine. And he'll do what he's told to because he doesn't know any better. And he thinks the people who are telling him what to do know what they're talking about. But he doesn't have the same mad enthusiasm that Truss and certainly Johnson and the other maniacs did for nuclear confrontation with Russia, for setting up uh, uh, a murderous fascist dictatorship in Ukraine, for oppressing everything that's left of free speech by shameless demagoguery in Britain, which was, of course, Boris Johnson's pride and joy. So... Uh, uh, the steam has gone out, the energy has gone out from, uh, uh, of the London leadership, at least for the moment. They'll still do what America tells them to, though. That's the first point. Second point is as long as Victoria Newland stays where she is, and as long as uh, the current Secretary of State and uh, National Security Advisor of the United States, where they are, the drive towards insanity will continue. But President Biden is very old. He's turning 80. And his cognitive processes are clearly slowing. He may not be presentable much longer. Kamala Harris, even the most idiotic Democrats, realizes simply on an entity. I think we are going to see Barack Obama groomed to take over the, for at least the next two, th three years while they play for time and see what they're doing next. On the Republican side, Trump is gone. He's just self-destructed. He really has. And there's no question who the next Republican key figure is. He's already there. He is Ron DeSantis uh, 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 of Florida. He fits the same pattern of Ronald Reagan in 1980, of uh, Franklin Roosevelt in 1932, and of Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1952. He's the consensus candidate of about two-thirds of the country and the more sensible and responsible, cautious, not moral, but more cautious and alert aspects of the power structure. I think you understand immediately, Alex, very clearly. And he is already emerging. If anything unfortunate were to happen to him, it would be a catastrophe for the United States. And in those circumstances, I think uh, uh, tipping off, uh, destabilizing Texas and the heartland would come much more easily. California would split or destabilize in different ways, because what we see in California is something different. What we see is the mad dream of the globalists and the transhumanists and uh, uh, the hatred of technology crowds crashing down and imploding. You have power crashes in what was for 150 years the most technologically advanced society on earth. There is even very significant evidence that heavier than air powered flight did not start with the Wright brothers or with Graf Zeppelin, but in San Francisco in the early 1890s. A lot of the so-called flying saucer sightings uh, uh, do not fit the sightings of uh, uh, we're familiar with of UFOs over the last 80 years, but fit more the pattern of very primitive airships across North America in the 1890s. The point is Northern Tech California then and Southern California, since the, the movie industry went there, became technologically enormously advanced. And yet today we see the collapse and backfiring of this because of mad science and mad dreams and mad anti technological fantasies. As for my Ireland, oh, it's definitely happening there. Because, I mean, and nothing changes in Ireland for 50 years at a time. I'm living proof of that. I lived through the last great changes and nothing has happened since then, even though they, sh they should have for both good and bad for the 50 years since. But what do we see now? 
we see Sinn Féin, the so-called big, bad, radical Irish Republican Party, which the English hate and fear more than they even fear Russia and China. They completely get distorted when they come to Irish Republicans. And Sinn Féin is going to be the next democratically elected government of Ireland unless the election can be fixed. And the Irish electoral system is remarkably honest and open and democratic and transparent. It's so far been very hard to fix it. It's That results in very quirky anomalous results in the Irish Republic, but they are democratic and they are realistic. And in, even in the North, despite all the manipulations of the British government and the Unionist Party, Sinn Féin is now by far the most realistic and largest supporting party in the North of Ireland, with a significant degree of support and rapprochement, even with a middle class Protestant base, which always shunted in the past. So what will change, one last point on Scotland, I thought the point about Scotland and Russia is very interesting, because I, what is not generally noted is how much, again, the, English, the city of London and the English imperialists in London hate and fear Scottish nationalism. Now, Irish nationalism is an old and familiar enemy to them. They happily scapegoated all the time and have done so very successfully for everything under the sun for the last 150 years or so. But Scottish nationalism is a curveball in baseball for them. It's something they never expected, and they don't know how to deal with Nicola Sturgeon, who now has vastly more executive experience in Edinburgh than any leader in the London government cabinet does. They don't know how to deal with her. And the information I have been receiving over the past year is that the intelligence community in London is obsessed with what's happening in Scotland, in Edinburgh, would love to destabilize Mrs. Sturgeon and is eager to do so. One final point confirming once again, President Putin has always had this very off-putting, disturbing, destabilizing habit of telling the truth. And when you come to the assassination of President Kennedy, I recommend uh, a book by James W. Douglas, JFK and the Unspeakable, I believe it's called, JFK and the Unspeakable, which documents, among other things, the son of Nikita Khrushchev, Sergei Khrushchev, as openly testifying. He's on the record on this, that after uh, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, and in early 1963, his father tasked the KGB with trying to keep President Kennedy alive and prevent him from being assassinated by his own deep state. Mm. And of course, the KGB were not supermen. They were operating in the United States against another very formidable and extremely well-organized and financed super state playing on its home ground, and they failed to do so. Yeah. But this, therefore, has been clearly, according to James Douglas's documentation, and Douglas is an outstanding scholar. Reads his work, stands on its own. But what what we see here is what President Putin said is not some shocking, quirky lie or comment. Oh, he should have kept it. You know, he's saying something that nobody ever believes. It's a crackpot comment. No, this has been the accepted understanding of the Soviet and Russian leaderships over the past 60 years, that this is the way real politics and power operate in the United States of America. Yep. Yep. Thank you for that, Martin. Appreciate it. Uh, Matthew or V, would you want to uh, jump into that, Matthew? I know you had a thought in regards to 
I mean, yeah, there, there's so there's so much value in what was just said, and on so many points. And I, I think uh, going back to what Alex had pointed out in regards to your original question of is there a way out an off ramp on Ukraine? Yeah, I, I completely agree with Alex. There's nothing really at the moment that is existent for the Russians to negotiate with. Ukraine had a couple of mild attempts to create some basis of negotiation, um, even as far as March 2022. And we saw that one of the only people who were somewhat qualified and honest in that in that ambition representing the Ukrainian side quickly turned up dead um, in the early minutes after meeting with the Russian delegation. So there was there was nothing really there to talk to. Um, and thus, yeah, you're you're forced to go for a more kinetic uh, approach at this point increasingly until um, until reality slaps the West sufficiently that maybe some some forces uh, that want to survive can be woken uh, to the appropriate uh, level of magnitude necessary to act in accordance with our genuine self-interest. But I think from my standpoint, and, and again, everything Marty just said, very interesting stuff. I, I you know, definitely what Medvedev went through, uh, Medvedev, sorry, what, what he went through, you know, the collapse of the Bretton Woods system, the the destruction of the U.S. dollar as the basis of, of global global trade. All of these things are, are inevitable consequences of the breakdown of the system. Um, and I mean, there's some stuff that Medvedev, I'm sure, was was being playful, uh, playful with as well. Um, I, I think that, though, for me, the most interesting thing is where the ivory tower modeling of the oligarchy breaks down with reality. And, and, I, and the phenomenon of Jeffrey Sachs, especially in recent months, has been an interesting psychological thing for me to watch. You know, when, when especially you take an appreciation for the broader waves of history, especially in regards to how and why the Hitler fascist transhumanist eugenics project for a global fascist bankers dictatorship in the 1930s. Why was that aborted? How how was the the strategy <clears throat> that was formally, you know, there was a consensus amongst the Anglo-American governing class that they would go and double down on that pro-fascist orientation. Um, you know, leading fact figures within the British royal family were behind it. Leading, you know, figures within the city of London, within uh, within Wall Street, were all fully behind the uh, the idea that. Uh, that Italian and German fascism in some variety would be the dominant, you know, global order in the in the post, you know, the post-war age. So why was that aborted? Why did Lloyd George, who had ambitions to become prime minister, not become prime minister once again in the in the mid to late thirties? Uh, what about Oswald Mosley? What about the king, you know, uh, King Edward the the eighth, <clears throat> who was ousted under this? You know, I mean, he was he was eliminated for being an embarrassment. Obviously, you know just just really adoring nazism but he was also as it was d discovered encouraging the nazis to bomb uh his fellow british people <laughs> uh even after the war began in order to get them to submit and reinstate him as the nazi king who would work very happily with the nazis so why did all of that get aborted what was that about you know and from there i think it, it's it's interesting to see how the oligarchy is really good at scheming and building up um a game plan but when it comes to execution it tends to always blow up in their face and then there's some demand by the oligarchy or at least their auxiliaries who are able to think a little bit more creatively jeffrey mm -hmm. Sachs being a very high level auxiliary he played a very dominant role we know his role very clearly in the context of arranging the the game plan for perestroika arranging for various cyberneticist you know ghoulish cultists 
that formally didn't have any power positions within Russia during the times of Brezhnev. He made sure that these figures and their acolytes would be positioned to be the technocratic managers in the 1990s, overseeing the creation of, of what became, you know, this, this monstrosity in the 90s of under under Yeltsin. So, I mean, that's what that's what Sachs, who is a cyberneticist, he is a Keynesian cyberneticist. He is not a noble character, but despite that, he has been deployed to be a voice of reason. Why does he actually represent, a, you know, handlers who actually believe in this just, equitable, respectful world, world order of win-win cooperation that he's extolling? I don't think so. But I think that it's recognized that Russia, China, Iran, all of these civilizational forces were never supposed to be in the positions that they are in today. That was yes. never supposed to happen according 100%. to the power. We also have to remember that the, the people who make these plans are very arrogant. And I think mm. that uh, if you're talking about the plans never coming to fruition exactly the way they're planned for, that's because only someone with a truly uh, – someone who believes in the Malthu of Malthusian vision of the future mm. is going to be arrogant and narcissistic. And so they're going to just assume that all of their plans are going to work. Yes. Or they're probably going to also fall into the trap that, well, I wrote this on a piece of paper. Therefore, it will be executed perfectly to the letter with no resistance, fatigue, sloth, confusion, so on and so forth. And most importantly, every single every single one of these Western morons, all of them forecast into a vacuum. Mm. They fork they 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 miss so many things. We're not dealing with evil diabolical geniuses of the umpteenth level. Yes. We're dealing with very mediocre, weak men, weak minded men. And when you when uh, and when you really study them, look, most of these guys, especially when you get into uh, into alt media and all these other stuff, these guys are reading white papers that these morons wrote, and they believe the white papers. Like, oh my god, I read the white paper, blah blah blah. This is true. No, there's an entire world outside of the West, and I, I've said this before. If it wasn't for the multipolar world, if it wasn't for Eurasia, I would have lost hope for humanity. So understand that there's no, you know, that this is some sort of entire global plot with global this. It's not. There's a huge pushback towards this. Uh, go ahead, Martin. Or uh, who is next? Uh, oh, I, I, I just want to say that also what you're talking about, very important when we're trying to understand Russia, is the fact that pretty much all information in the West about Russia is fake. It's been so fake for so long that essentially yeah. they've disinformed themselves into the madness of thinking, boy, when we attack the Russians, they're going to run out of ammo. They have no military. Exactly. Their economy is going to collapse exactly. because half of the Russian economy is oil and gas, even though the 2014 uh, uh, sort of you know economic sanctions versus Russia that they took proved that that's not true because the logic was, well, if over half your economy is oil and gas, we create an oil and gas crisis. Your economy collapses. It didn't in 2014, and it didn't in 2022. So they should have known better. You know, mm -hmm. fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But essentially, we're in this e eternal, unending loop of this disinformation. Like on my uh, channel there, Tim Kirby, uh, R Russia Hardcore, one guy was saying, well, you know, Russia's facing a demographic crisis in the future. Yeah. Are you sure? I don't think we even know. We, we don't know. Everything is just so disinformed that who knows? Because these articles that they always write about Russia's going to have this imminent collapse, Putin is going to be destroyed, this, that, and the other. They always state a lot of facts, but who knows where those facts come from? Anyways, sorry for dominating the conversation. Whoever was next? No, very valuable input. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Martin, go for it. Oh, thank you. I think V and Tim, again, guys, you just nailed it 100%. Now, I'm an Oxford graduate. 
I have technically two, two degrees from the University of Oxford. Under the system, it's actually one degree that converts, but it was a, it was a good degree at a good time. There's a huge difference between Oxford and Cambridge as the two intellectual centers of Britain, and at least initially, though not since for the past hundred years, but before that of the Western world. Oxford is obsessed with power and politics and human interaction and is subtle. It has produced twice as many British prime ministers as Cambridge. But you could not have the world of science for the past 400 years without Cambridge. Whether you love them or hate them, Isaac Newton is from Cambridge. I think, is, isn't Alan Turing a Cambridge man? Uh, 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 Rutherford and the development of nuclear, uh, nuclear technology and research does not come from Einstein, that's a myth. It comes from Rutherford and Cockcroft and the researchers of the Cavendish Laboratory. And of course, in the last 60 years, we have an even more powerful tool to, uh, to manipulate and shape or distort our future. And that is molecular biology. And it comes from decoding the DNA helix and worded Francis Crick and James Watson, Anglo-American alliance again, do it. They did it in Cambridge. And Bertrand Russell is from Cambridge. And Keynes is from Cambridge. And what you find from Cambridge, and Darwin is a Cambridge man. What you find from Cambridge is an obsession with cold, abstract science, and they are the best in the world at it. They pioneered yeah. it in so many fields. You could not have the modern world or science without Cambridge science, but they don't relate to human beings. And this explains exactly what Matt was saying, why they have these huge, cold, supposedly mathematical, supposedly logical, brilliant ideas, but humanity is messy and it is not like that. And I always end up citing my old teacher and mentor at Oxford, the political philosopher Isaiah Berlin, who called himself a man of the left, but it was a very different left from the conceptual left we talk about these days. He, he loved England. He hated the British Empire, hated it, rejoiced in the end of empire, worked endlessly for that, peacefully and democratically, wanted to dismantle the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe, again, peacefully and consensually as well. But what was Berlin's central theme? That the attempt to create any perfect utopia for all of humanity, in other words, a unipolar world again, he said any conception of utopia will automatically create a dystopia instead. Any vision of paradise will create hell rather than paradise on earth. Because once you decide your way is the only way ahead for the human race to achieve eternal happiness and security, then you will feel justified in killing and suppressing everyone in your path. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what the New World Order people have done. Mm. The, uh, the end of the Cold War was a catastrophe for the human race because it empowered these people and their spiritual children and grandchildren with the re religious fervor and conception of new crusaders that they and they alone have the ultimate happiness and future and perfection of humanity in their hands. And they are therefore justified in destroying the rest of us. Yeah. Thank you, Martin. Uh, Tim, I think you're getting a little bit short on time here. So did you want to? How are you doing, sir? We yeah, yeah, I probably should be going. So, uh, yeah, anyways, uh, let me just have part? some, I guess, uh, final words. Um, one thing that I guess I should mention again, a uh, year in review. So, like I said, I kind of 
uh, put together some notes. Uh, one thing I didn't mention was the uh, the attack on the Crimean Bridge, which sort of put it out of operation for a debatable amount of days uh, and the rise of the sort of escalation of tensions, I think, was another important moment. And one important moment that uh, touched a lot of people's lives and mine personally was the assassination of Daria Dugana, uh, yeah. who I consider to be a, a close personal friend. So uh, that's kind of the end of my year in review uh, from a, a Russian standpoint. Uh, and it might sound very monolithic. It's all multipolar world and it's all things related to the war in Ukraine. Uh, but like I've said to people before, uh, one thing to understand, Russia, is that this whole Ukrainian situation has been the number one news story uh, since, you know, like about 2014. So if you could imagine yes. if in America we had one number one news story for eight years, one number one cause, number one issue, not the usual cycle, be it something uh, reasonable, like who knows, taxes or uh, the fight for or against abortion, depending on your side, or something kind of pointless, like whoever's lives matter and this, that, and the other. But imagine going on for eight years. So uh, that's an important context. And uh, one thing that Russians want more than anything in 2023 is for this to be resolved, yeah. for this to be over with, uh, and especially over with in a favorable position for Russia, but just essentially over with so that way we can move on. Although, guys, um, I'm having a strong feeling that our, um, <coughs> excuse me, our friends that have a utopian vision for the future, that like Martin said, uh, people with utopian visions tend to create hell, uh, they're not going to go quietly off into the no. night. And no, so not. the dream of the Russian ma masses that, well, we'll take most of the Ukraine, uh, we'll establish a border with Transnistria, that'll basically ensure peace in our time, and then everyone can just be happy in a world that's sort of segregated into two sides, and we can all um, sing Kumbaya. Uh, that is the dream of the Russian masses, but unfortunately, I don't think that that is going to be the case. I think we we have um, uh, a, a ways to go. In fact, um, Sergei Lavrov uh, actually recently said uh, something about that, uh, something like to do with them, the dismantlement of the dollar or like de-dollarization, yeah. how that sort of battle has only just begun. I forgot his exact wording, but even with him, he sort of understood, like, was expressing the point that. Uh, th there's a lot of processes that are going to take a long time here. Exactly. And unfortunately, they're only just starting. And uh, whatever the world is going to look like, it's probably going to be in more of a five-year span rather than a one-year span. Um, Russians are famous for being patient, but that uh, is patient by being forced to by factors of history, not because people here uh, value patience or want yes. to be patient. Yes. Uh, everyone wants this thing to be over, but it's apparently not going to be. So that's all I got, guys. Um, it was great seeing you. I hope you all have a wonderful year Thank you, uh, this year in 2023. And I also hope to maybe see some of you in Russia. Who knows? I'm not saying who, so. but who knows? I, I might hop. Over, I might cool. make a make a hop over uh, from Dubai over to uh, Moscow mm. one of these days. So absolutely, dude. I I just saw it. Gold was a uh, four thousand rubles a gram. Come on, man. It's coming, man. I'm telling you right now. It's it's like, uh, dude. I mean, just like three weeks ago, we had one guy take one. When I say one guy, it's not one guy. One institution, because I'm on the institutional side of these things. Yeah. We had one institution take down 51 tons Whoa. In, in, in one one go. Oh, and I call I, and I call my 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 uh, uh LBMA, my London Bullion Market Association supplier. I'm like, hey, what's going on? He's like, V, we just had one one uh one uh institution come by, they just took down 51 tons. There's you're gonna have to wait. I'm like, okay. 
And wow. I have no problems with delivering metal anywhere in the world as much as you want, as much as you can take. I can I can deliver it anywhere. Oh, yeah. On a personal note, sometimes people are kind of like what personal stories. This year, I literally lost all my life savings and got double back. So I'm kind of trying to buy like a small Moscow apartment. But the gold prices here, there's a little bit of a little sort of, I don't know, maybe we could say Irish leprechaun inside me that saw that today they're selling uh, uh, one gram for 4000 instead of 5000 which it was like a couple months ago. That is very intriguing. So I don't know. I think I think gold is, you know, the price point that we have settled at, depending how things go in 2023, we have it priced anywhere between 33 to $3,600 an ounce on spot. Uh, if yeah. things get really crazy with the situation in Europe, Ukraine, uh, 4,600 to 5,300 is is not, mm. you know, out of the oh, question. Boy. Yeah. All right. Well, All right. who knows what the future holds is gold. But anyways, guys, it's great seeing you. Merry Christmas pleasure. and uh, Happy New Year's and all that stuff. I'm Thank out. you for joining. Year. Thank you. Cheers. Gentlemen, um, uh, picking back off exactly what uh, Tim was talking about in terms of um, the, the the empire and the exit ramp that doesn't doesn't exist. There was an interesting article um, that came out yesterday, and I'm not sure. Apologize if this is catching everyone off guard, uh, but this apparently was released by Jack Murphy that he basically shared the fact that the CIA had been using a European NATO NATO ally uh, spy service to conduct covert sabotage campaign inside Russia under the agency's direction. Uh, the mm-hmm. article goes on in great detail to share how this has taken place, that that this uh, covert operation has existed in Russia since the basically the Obama era, and now they're basically putting it into play. Now, this article came out, and, and I always like to wait to see who else is going to piggyback off of it. So anti-war did carry it as well, which to me that adds a little legitimacy because I'm sure they have more time than I do to fact check some of these things. But my question is, is, is the timing and in the event where uh, the West doesn't see uh, any proper resolution, are, are they wanting NATO or I'm sorry, wanting Russia to actively uh, engage NATO or are they setting the course for some type of preemptive type strike? Because I think that's on a lot of people's questions in regards to you hear a lot of people talking about the threat of nuclear war and so forth. So. What what potentially would the West do in the event that they they see that they have no other options that they've lost the war in Ukraine? And I'll open that up to anyone. Alex, you want to tackle that one? Um, no, I'm I'm blank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a. <laughs> I mean, I'm not I'm not comfortable with with those sorts of things either. I, uh, I mean, uh, look, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me if it if it was true, uh, and it wouldn't surprise me if the Russians knew all about this. But mm-hmm. I honestly, I'm not sure that I have anything to add to that. What was the question again? Just in just in regards to um, the the timing of this article coming out, uh, discussing in detail how uh, the CIA had an operation inside of of uh, Moscow already existing, and they're the ones directly responsible for some of the sabotage, some of the recent attacks in Russia. Uh, they were leveraging a European NATO ally spy agency to conduct these covert operations. Uh, this article came out yesterday. Did, did they allude to which which European uh, so-called ally? France, England. Who are they? Who are uh, they let me to? see here. Um, I, you know, I can bring the article up real quick uh, so that we can uh, kind of uh, detail it out a little bit. Uh, basically, you, you know, goes, I'll take I'll take that with a grain of salt, and I'll tell you why. 
if you guys <laughs> remember a few years ago, okay, this was directly from the CIA agency. A lot of the CIA analysts and agents have come forward and said, this was maybe three or four years ago, probably hot on the heels of the Maidan. And one of the two chief complaints that the CIA had, number one, their ever-shrinking operations in Russia because their agents keep getting caught, okay? Number two, the fact that the Russians, and if you just check back within the last couple of weeks, last few months, ever since the Russians kicked off the special military operation, is that a lot of the Western NGOs, a.k.a. CIA front organizations, uh, Western-linked uh, individuals who are of, of dubious backgrounds and whatnot, were getting captured, were being shut down. So it was becoming harder and harder for the quote-unquote agency, the CIA, to operate in Russia. And the biggest chief complaint of all of it was the fact that the CIA cannot penetrate China. That was a major news that came out a few years ago with the CIA. Russia has been consistently, year after year, just pruning a lot of the Western influences out of it, a lot of Western intelligence agencies out of their society, a lot of the fifth columns are being uh, 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 starving them on the vine, so to speak, choking them out. And China, forget about it. I mean, we've heard, if you guys remember, uh, again, a couple months ago, maybe two or three years ago, a large swath of CIA agents and moles and assets were captured, were prosecuted, were executed in China. So this is a big problem. The CIA. This is not the same CIA from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s when they were known as the Cocaine Import Agency. They're not run by some of the smartest tools in the shed, so to speak. And it's not the same Russia and China. R Russia and China has gotten much more sophisticated in their anti-intelligence operations, and the CIA has gotten more dumber, to say the least. Well, uh, V, to be yeah. fair, maybe they're not run by the, the smartest people anymore, but they're more diverse and more inclusive. That is true. <laughs> they, have you seen the CIA ad where this lady says, I have bipolar schizophrenia, and I my, my pronouns are he and her, and I work for the CIA. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, you, know, you, can't, have every, you can't have everything. No, you, know, you can't you have, have everything, but you know, we, we still lead in the forefront of, uh, of inventing new genders. Uh, which uh, I, I, I think uh, is the future market for America, is to create <laughs> genders, uh, create a digital derivative of this, and use this as some sort of a financial instrument to be traded on a digital currency exchange. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be our biggest export, gentlemen. I mean, the uh, you know, trash and recyclables and cutting it. Yeah. Go ahead, Martin. Okay. Actually... If I had to spe speculate, I, I know nothing about this story until we just had it up here now, but my instinctive reaction is there is only one agency in Europe, in Eurasia, that the, uh, the, the our agency, the CIA, or the, the U.S. intelligence community would outsource this to. It would be the Brits. Yeah. Be uh, it's because you have the five eyes relationship again, you have this very close relationship and you have two other factors. First, even back in the Gorbachev era in the 1980s, and I was reporting on this for the Washington Times at the time, the, uh, the, the, the most important intelligence assessments that convinced President Reagan that he could uh, negotiate with or deal with 
from a position of advantage and strength with Mikhail Gorbachev came from the Brits because the high-level defectors went to them, because the Brits had dealt with their own internal security agency issues, and uh, they were able to protect Russian moles, who, Soviet moles who came to them, whereas the CIA through the 1980s and into the 1990s manifestly could not. And for any Soviet or Russian agent who either for love of money or hatred of their country, or for a simple well, their own versions of idealism, wanted to work for the West. If they went to work for the CIA, they were signing their own death warrants because of the CIA leaked like a sieve, whereas the Brits did not. That's the first point. But secondly, if we look at Russiagate, Russiagate throws an enormous light on this, because Christopher Steele, the former very high level indeed, British uh, 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 MI6 or Secret Intelligence Service officer, had previously for 10 years run uh, uh, British intelligence operations in Russia. Now, he proved to be so catastrophic and inept and criminally irresponsible in intervening in the internal affairs of the United States in the 2016 election and thereafter that heaven knows what havoc he wrought on British intelligence gathering in Russia in Putin's first decade. It doesn't seem to have held Putin and the Russians back at all. But the here is a man who ran Russia operations for the British Intelligence Service and then becomes intimately involved with the CIA and the FBI and the U.S. deep state in domestic U.S. politics afterwards as well and has never been adequately investigated, of course not by the FBI, but not by the Congress either. Yep, thank you for that, Martin. The same measure too, Martin, like, you know, we, if you were to ask Sergei Skripal or... Berezovsky or a variety of other uh, <laughs> Russian traders their, uh, <laughs> their future into, into London's hands. That didn't turn out that well either. No, it did not, did it? Very good point. Good, Alex. I have a question for Matthew because, yeah. you know, a um, little, little bit ago we were talking about the about the new alliances and new what, what's going to happen with, with this, you know, uh, fallouts from the Ukraine conflict. Uh, are any movements at all on your radar within Canada in terms of possible uh, mm, partition of Canada? Yes and no. I mean, right now there's there's the first relatively competent provincial government that we've seen in a long time in Alberta, which uh, recently took power not not more than two months ago, which has shown a little bit of actual active resistance towards some of the edicts being imposed onto them from the Great Reset uh, puppets in Ottawa. And that's good. And there's actually a big migration happening into Alberta. I think it's, a, it's breaking records in terms of how many Canadians, it's like the new Florida for Canadians is Alberta. <laughs> so that's, that's an anomaly and it is creating a... Uh, a sort of field um, whereby Saskatchewan adjacent to Alberta, Prairie Province, very blue collar, um, is also winning a little bit of confidence to take a stand to. And there's certain um, there's a certain push to declare or to assert their sovereign authority because in the Canadian Constitution from the, the British North America Act of, of 1857, it's it's very much unlike any other constitution. Because it's not really a constitution, first of all, but it, it does grant it's 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 very unique in the sense that pr provinces 
have an incredible amount of authority over the control, utilization, and development of their own local resources that are, are located within their, their environment. They're also authorized to make foreign treaties, which is unheard of. There's I don't know of another government where a province is allowed to make uh, <laughs> a bilateral. That, that, that's huge, man. Yeah, it's yeah that's, that is that is huge. That, uh, I, I, I wasn't aware of this. Where is Alberta? Well, Alberta is not indicating at the moment that they're interested in making said foreign treaties, but the fact that they're allowed to do it is interesting. Um, right now, they're, they're more standing up for their right to choose to you know deal with mandates how they see fit, not how they're being told by some detached bureaucrats or experts in Ottawa or, or Davos. And that's cool. Um, but also, they've taken a stand on the right to control their own utilization of resources. And again, Saskatchewan is coming forth doing something very similar. And, and there, there's talk of a, of a West what's called a, a, a Wexit, sort of the, the Western provinces going for a break. I think it would only kind of work if you also had British Columbia, but that's not going to happen with British Columbia being the LGBTQ, uh, you know, freak show that it is. Um, however, who knows, right? Because things can change quite, quite quickly in the time of a crisis. And we know that B British Columbia in 2016 signed a memorandum of understanding with China um, around cooperation on the Belt and Road Initiative. That was in 2016. That government was was disposed, but it was still done as a precedent and nobody ever revoked it. So you have these different things. Um, you also had, you know, under under Trump towards the last several months of Trump's presidency, he, Trump did pass an executive order. He was working with the former Albertan government of Jason Kenney to build the uh, the Alaska Canada Railway. Sure. Would then connect down into the 48 states with a private company. And it, it had full full support by the federal government of the U.S. as well as Alberta it would have been great, um, and Alberta would have been able to do that without having to go to Ottawa. That was that's that was that's why Ottawa was really freaked out. Justin Trudeau's handlers were really scared of this thing because uh, it was all also based upon if you look at the the, the program that justified this this highway project and, and rail project, it was all the China growth growth market that was justifying its 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 program. All of it was like you wouldn't do it. There was no financial incentive if it weren't for increasing exports to the China China uh, market, especially with the vast resources we have in the Arctic that have to be. I mean, if we if we really cared about our future, we would start developing roads and rail up there where there, we, we cur currently cannot get to them. Unlike the Russians, who have done a much better job developing infrastructure in the north. So, you know, it's a possibility. And I think if you had a, a sane like strategic um leadership in canada that was willing to resist this great reset agenda which there is not on the federal level you know we have two two parties on the federal level and then i'll stop talking but you have the conservative party which has finally taken a bit of a stand uh after the truckers convoy for the first time they grew a bit of balls and actually at least in words started standing up to the uh, the great reset but again in words and then you have the people's party uh of maxime bernier which is a smaller party he was a former cabinet minister under uh, Stephen Harper. He went and created sort of a um, a Canada first type of, you know, pseudo Trump like party, which which has a lot of really good people. Like the best people that I've, I've encountered in Canada are have become members of that or that that particular party. They're they're, you know, your conspiracy theory crowd, right? People who regular people who want to have a future. So they're organizable, but ideologically, both the Pierre Poilievre conservatives as well as Maxime Bernier are ideologically absolute libertarians to the extreme, where they mm. see no role for the government in 
you know, doing anything economically. So if the, the I, I actually asked Maxime Bernier at a town hall meeting a couple of months back on, on film, I, I asked him like, well, you know, the, the, the economy is going to melt down. There's a shockwave that's going to hit us. It's going to cause a lot of death. What do you see as a role of the Bank of Canada as an instrument of, we know that, that these can be used as instruments of destruction. Government can obviously destroy, but do you see a possibility to use these as instruments of creation as well? We used to build infrastructure, you know, China's still building infrastructure with national banks. Do you see a purpose to that or at least, you know, protectionism or anything to, to protect people from the oncoming collapse? And his response was so disappointing. was like, absolutely not. Because the, 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 he said, basically, we, we all know that creative destruction is real. We need to have destruction in order for some synergistic. Oh, you know, God. Some emergence of a new form of combined emerge, and it's like, well, yeah, maybe that'll emerge, or maybe we'll get a hardcore death cult fascism that emerges too. Like, yes, exactly. Like, how do you just? And and that's the problem with libertarianism. It's such a defensive, laissez-faire point of view. It's uh, it's unbelievable. It's so defensive. Yeah, Ugh. that's that's the biggest yeah, yeah. miracle of Philly's heel, I think, is the inability to see how the, the power of the sovereign nation state could be used as an instrument for good. They yeah. they yeah, can't yeah. conceptualize it, and so they can't, and thus they can't understand why does this oligarchy want to get rid of the sovereign nation state and create a one world government? It's because they, they see the sovereign nation state as something which can take away their power if it's used under a moral leadership. You know, right. it's it happened every time. Every time it's been done for the past centuries, it's worked to re- to reduce the power of the oligarchy and defend and emancipate human beings who represent the government and are take responsibility for their government. That's the way government is supposed to work with a national bank or protection. It, yeah, so they have to get that mental block. Uh, they got to overcome that because they're good people. They just can't. So far, they haven't been able to leap leap over the the wall. No, they can't. Gentlemen, I want to be mindful of everyone's time. I thought perhaps we could go around the room and talk about 2023 and, uh, you know, some thoughts on the road ahead. Who wants to start? <laughs> Not everyone wants. <laughs> Martin, you go for it first. Oh, I was hoping to go second. <laughs> okay, B, go for Alex, it. Go Alex. Alex, come on, someone. <laughs> Alex, 2023 outlook, buddy. Go for it. Okay, I'll take the bait. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I think Andrew Tate is going to run for president and win the elections. He's got okay. my vote. No, I'm joking. <laughs> although I did, I did really want to bring up the subject of Andrew Tate because I'm very confused. Uh, where did this person emerge from, and what is this? I, I'm suspecting some kind of a psyop, but let's let's leave that aside anyway for now. Um, so, 2023. Uh, look, I. I tend to be incurably optimistic about the future, even though I recognize that it's going to be it's going to be a bumpy ride for a little while. And I don't know how I don't know how long it'll take, but I do see that humanity is in the best position. That it that it ever has been, because the one thing that we never had and that we have now is this damn Internet. Yeah, you know, which allows us to have these kinds of conversations, to exchange information practically instantly. And I see that at least that segment of humanity that's paying attention and that is questioning the orthodoxies that we, you know, maybe embraced over the years before, you know, when we didn't 
we didn't suspect that we were we were ruled over by by an evil cabal um i think that we are growing smarter by the day because um you know anytime any question emerges the answers coalesce you know they they almost happen instantaneously the good example is this quote from Mao Zedong that we just looked at you know like that that came out of nowhere and a confirmation came with it almost immediately and I've seen this again and again and I was I was a a few weeks ago I was on a podcast with with Tom Luongo who was who was saying about the same thing and he said like you know since he started publishing a few people who kind of recognized the value of, of in in what he was writing uh, started this interaction with him, you know, in a, in a forum or uh, by email, whatever. And they're just complimenting each other. And you know, he'll come up, connect a few dots, then you know, he'll get other people adding a few dots, reconnecting them. And he said he's he's astounded by how much it has upgraded his game and everybody else's and we all get to read it to listen to it agree or disagree add or you know take away what we want but this is happening at a at a very rapid pace and in the collective and i think that the the establishment has no answer to this they they have prepared themselves to censor but you know you can censor when you have you know a Tucker Carlson here, a Phil Donahue there. And then, you know, if they go off the reservation, you find a way to discredit them, to silence them and, or to take them off the air. When it's tens, hundreds of thousands of people, millions, I've started following media from India and from Pakistan who produce very respectable journalism. You know, it gives you another perspective. And so I think that the events will unfold in a manner that is going to be favorable to the emancipation of humanity. And I think that the outcome of this is going to be orders of magnitude better than what, what we can even imagine. Um, some people have tried to quantify uh, how much the banking industry extracts in terms of wealth from the economy. You know, basically the wealth that we create how much of it is extracted away from us and concentrated in a few hands that then do whatever they do with it. And if that conveyor belt is disrupted, it is disrupted, then a huge deal more wealth remains in the hands of the people who can, you know, as they regain sovereignty, decide how that wealth should be deployed and and used and you know uh, i i would say the 99.9 percent .9 of us will agree on most things you know everybody wants to live in safe neighborhoods in nice comfortable warm home homes eat quality foods but you know we've we've lived inside of this matrix for generations we were born into it uh it's basically all we know mm -hmm. and so imagining what might replace it as we transcend this phase of history um it's probably very difficult even for us you know we're we're maybe like you know generations of chickens who only lived inside of the of the of the chicken coop 
and don't really know what might happen to us once we once we step into into liberty but I don't think we're just talking about material wealth. I, I think we're talking about things that go way beyond that. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm deep inside. I'm very excited about things that are happening. I can't imagine what they might look like. I really do hope that our children and their children will discover it. And I think that's worth everything. I, I think that's worth um, every act of courage that many of us, you know, um, juggle in our heads daily because we have to always uh, make decisions between what's good for my career, what's good for humanity, what's good for my integrity and my self-respect and so forth. Mm. And I think it's worth erring on the side of uh, boldness and courage because, you know, the way this will impact the outcome of this transition phase is uh probably has some kind of a crazy multiplier effect mm. and so uh to sum it up quickly uh, i'm very optimistic and uh i just think that the more of us participate in this transition and the more of us invest the best of our quality that we can master into it in whatever capacity we can uh, the more likely that we prevail over over these other people yeah well said well said yeah i would i would just completely oh, yeah that was very well said i i think yeah overall if i were just looking as i think too many people do myopically only at my immediate surroundings here in in our corner of the transatlantic where i'm, I'm based in canada you know, and if I was just looking at, at transatlantic geopolitics and economics by itself, like V said earlier on, I would be a much more depressed person. Um, I don't, thank God. I look at the broader chemistry as we all do, and I try to train my mind to look at a top-down context always, both in the present space as far as like the globe is concerned as a world chemistry, but also in time. So context in space and in time. And knowing where the Achilles heels are located within oligarchical systems, what is the, the constant anti-creative ideology that the oligarchy is sort of wired to that transcends generations, right? There's always something that is, is the same, that always brings about the similar dark age type result every time it's applied because there's a defiance, a denial of fundamental truths of what natural law is, what human nature is, being, being it that we are, as a species, part of the universe, right? We're both this, and so we're, this, this whole idea of humanity, we are, we are um, a subjective, living, feeling creature of conscience that abides according to transcendental non-expressible values that can't be put into a computer code in some you know binary system of digitization it can't be done you can't put justice or the soul or a concept of the divine into a computer though the oligarchy is really committed to doing things like that they want to try to have a, a system of, of absolute controls and so they just want to always, whether we're talking about the, the oligarchical systems of an, the ancient Roman Empire or before that, um, 
or or in Venice or in England or you know today's configuration, they're always trying to define the system as a bag of chemicals, of molecules, of atoms that can you know just be controlled by the the by behaviorists who can reward or punish according to certain desirable behaviors you wish the system to have. But it's like they deny the reality that we are a creature of conscience and of, of mind, of creativity. And that's 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 where our soul feeds. And the idea of I think the multipolar alliance today, what gives me a lot of hope, looking at the 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 grand strategists, when I read the writings of Sergei Glaziev, um, who is such an important um weapon that is has been used though subtly in organizing the, the the basis around which the Eurasian Economic Union, as well as its integration with um, China's Belt and Road Initiative, and so many other things, his his mind is is rich. It is fresh. It understands the nature of the oligarchy and many of the the collaborators that he's been working with in Asia amongst the Chinese leadership think on a very similar high level uh, modality as do his allies in Russia, obviously, and many others. So, I mean, we're seeing miracles happening whereby, you know, nations who had formerly played a very nefarious role as as chess pieces within the great game are finally um, being given an alternative. Like there's actual pathways where Turkey is now working with Russia. They're, they're bridging diplomatic bridges with Syria, building up their relationships there. So is Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran, as well as other Gulf states are working now to heal their rivalries and past transgressions with Iran. Uh, you have, you know, a, a pipeline being set up right now, or at least with with there, 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 there's there's new things that are moving really fast to provide Russian oil via Turkey into Europe. All sorts of things to give Europe a, different chances as the crisis deepens and deepens to get into a life raft and save themselves. They're not ready for it yet. The 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 collapse hasn't. I I, I don't think the fire has been felt adequately to sort of wake them up in the same sense that in 1929 would Americans have understood the need for a new deal or breaking up the Wall Street banks in 1929 before the collapse? No. I think in some sense the leadership or the, the leading factions, the elites within within America, as well as obviously many of the people, were not ready for that. They had been too soft-minded, too corrupted by decades of you know, free trade, easy money during the 20s, you know, really since since Rose uh, McKinley's death in 1901, it was 30 years of generally consistent decay on an economic, spiritual level, culturally in the United States until the Great Depression. So that that pain was almost in some sense that that suffering was the wake up call for the people to then rally around something that would give them a future. Now, the danger is that it could have been if you didn't have a Roosevelt you know, we saw how 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 this formula is used to also get people to rally around the support of fascism. Thank God we had a Roosevelt who rejected fascism. And and I think the 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 torch that Roosevelt carried then is currently being carried by the leadership of Russia, China, the the, the broader Eurasian partnership. So that that does give us a bunch of pathways. Um again, how it's going to manifest, I don't know. I, I, it's definitely going to be a character building experience for many of, of us here, especially in the West. And it's, I, I'm not comfortable talking about details either. I, I, I don't know. But like Alex said, we have to be very strong, be very obedient to our conscience and have faith that every time that we act in accordance with the truth, we resonate in nonlinear ways that are invaluable, even if our names are not necessarily remembered 
the the act of standing up for truth and courage will have a resonating power far beyond the limits of our lives, which will have all sorts of effects on the minds of others who, you know, uh, who need examples, role models and people to stand up and show courage too. So. Yeah. Wonderful, Matt. Thank you for that. Uh, Martin and then V. Okay. Uh, I, I should have started rather than waited because Alex and Matt. Uh, <laughs> Tough act to follow, Martin. Tough they, act to follow, bud. Exactly. <laughs> and the point is they both brought, went to vast philosophical issues about the future of the West. I'm not comfortable with that. I, I'm a skeptic, a skeptic about that. I, I reflect the Oxford School of A.J. Ayer and Isaiah Berlin in uh, the 1960s. 60s, 70s, a great distrust of two sweeping ideas of any view whatsoever because they're too ponderous, they're too all sweeping, and they uh, people are so fond of the great complex intellectual structures a la Hegel, they can never adapt to reality. Ironically, I'm a great believer in the Hegelian dialectic as opposed to the Marxist dialectic, which precisely took the spiritual dimension, which Hegel rightly saw to be of crucial importance, out of it. And the result was we had the sheer brutalistic horror of a hundred years of, 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 of Soviet history, which crushed the life out of the Russian people and all the other peoples who were along them were also trapped in the system. But when, when I look at where we are today, for me, I'm with my dear friend Helen Caldicott, the great peace, global peace and anti-nuclear campaigner. We can come back from anything except thermonuclear war except thermonuclear war. And we are uh, heading straight forward on a suicidal collision course, during the Russians, radicalizing them, trying to turn them into the psychopaths of our own darkest imaginations. And the result will be the total destruction of London and Britain and of America and of the entire Western civilization. I do believe it's not the end of humanity. East Asia will st still be there. Parts of the Middle East, Russia may still be there. Uh, Latin America, I think, has enormous potential to lead the world in the future that nobody pays any attention to. And it's about time they did, especially Argentina and Chile by virtue of both the lessons they've learned from their history and their resources and the abilities of their populations and their geographical location. If I were young enough and spoke decent enough Spanish, I would move to southern Chile or to uh, Argentina, south of Buenos Aires, and I would recommend anybody else here to do the same. Hmm. Uh, I would, I, I, I would uh, bet high high on those cultures and civilizations. And I think in the short term, at least the Japanese and the Chinese have enough good sense to try and stay, stay out of any suicidal confrontation. But uh, for me, we're back where we began with Tim, which is the driving force uh, to, uh, uh, to destroy world civilization at the moment, uh, uh, driven from Washington, is the escalating conflict over Ukraine. It all comes back to that. And I fully agree, alas, with, uh, uh, with Matt and with Alex, of course. They're absolutely right. Realistically, there is no off-ramp. And yet the off-ramp exists. The off-ramp is the Minsk Accords. And all I can suggest is that we try. And uh, uh, it doesn't matter. That my, again, Helen Caldicott found this. She could put 700,000 people on the streets of New York City and San Francisco, and it didn't make a damn. 
because Ronald Reagan ruled in Washington and a, 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 ABC television uh, uh, was controlled by Capital Cities, which was an organization created by Bill Casey, who was director of central intelligence under Ronald Reagan. And once it didn't matter what seven millions of people thought in the streets of America, it didn't matter. But what can matter is if you can bring home to the policymakers and even the titular policymakers, the, the so-called members of parliament in Ottawa, in Washington, in London, as individuals, if you can bombard them every day with the message, you are going to die screaming in nuclear fire. You are going to see your children and grandchildren die screaming in nuclear fire. And it isn't just one crackpot saying it. It's hundreds of thousands of people phoning them and telegramming them and telling them every time they buy a coffee or get into a car. I think that's the only grassroots way that can work. Nonviolent, peaceful, law-abiding, constitutional the truth, but never let them get away from it and stick it down their throats till they scream and choke. I think that's the only way to do it. And I think you guys here are a God-given start in this. Thank you. Uh, Martin, thank you. You're too kind. Appreciate that. V, closing thoughts and then bring us home. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, what everyone said is 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 100% correct. I mean, right now, I think the next uh, 12 to 24 months are going to be incredibly critical, uh, yes. vital. Uh, you know, Martin hit it home when he said that, you know what, the risk of thermonuclear war is real. And when you study the psychology of the insane West, when you study the psychology of these nihilistic death cult morons who are running us roughshod into thermonuclear annihilation, they, they it, it, it's, it's almost their type of, of, of civilizational masochists, for lack of a better word, right? They... You know, they think they're going to survive. They think that yes. out of the fire, out of the chaos, out of the disorder, that they will have their perfect utopia. These people are insane. It is similar to some sort of an end-of-the-world cult that's waiting for a UFO to come along, and they're all got the, the fruit punch ready and spiked, and they're ready to go uh, to, be, uh, you know, to be abducted and taken on board this UFO. And we've seen so much of these uh, doomsday cult. And that's what, that's what the Western elites are. They are a doomsday cult. And, you know, the thing is, one, uh, the, and it's crazy because I look at the Western population because the Western population, the majority of them have no clue of this. Yes, there's people that are being called out and being confronted. And uh, we've seen that recently with AOC, uh, with uh, uh, individuals linked to the Schiller Institute, calling out uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortex. Um, you know, when she was out there talking nonsense and these young gentlemen stood up and screamed, hey, you're, you're, you're you know, what's going to matter when there's nuclear war? And there are confrontations that are occurring like that. But the problem with Americans and the problem with American politicians, we think that we have this advanced, incredible military that will protect us from everything and the most greatest superpower the world's ever seen. And we have the largest economy in the world. And we always... Uh, come out of it. Everything is just a cycle. The market situation we're in, the economic situation we're in is a cycle. There's nothing cyclical about this. Oh, it's a cycle, all right. It's a civilizational ending cycle. Yes. That's the cycle we're on. There's nothing normal, uh, you know, as to, oh, this is just another market cycle or anything like that. Civilizational ending cycle, history repeating itself, America being relegated to the dustbin of history. That's what we're facing. So, 
the question now that the multipolar world, specifically Russia and China, are facing, even you know, talking with 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 countries like India and whatnot, there are murmurs, there are rumors and murmurs right now. Hey, look, we know these maniacs in D.C. We know that these lunatics in London. Okay, they're going to probably try to push us to a nuclear Armageddon. How do we stop them? And the answer is very simple: kill the dollar. And that's going to be the red button that's on the table right now is nuke the dollar. If they can nuke the dollar, this nonsense stops. It ends. Because once the dollar plummets, it implodes, right? And, the, and, and specifically China is the one that has the capability of doing that, where they can nuke the dollar and its reserve currency status forever. And that point... There's not going to be enough fuel to move or nuclear fuel to move an aircraft carrier to pay a soldier to procure rounds. And isn't it telling that this Ukraine war had a had a silver lining? The United States is emptying. They are running low on so much ammunition. It's been revealed to the world what happens when you have a paper tiger go up against an industrial juggernaut. The paper tiger has been screaming, oh, the Russians are going to be running out of ammo anytime now. Oh, next Tuesday at 3 a.m., they're going to run out of ammo. And next Tuesday comes and goes. And then they realize, oh, they're not running out of ammo. What the United States is, they're running out of ammo. We're running out of Patriot missiles. We're running out of HIMARS. We're running out of so many uh, uh, um, uh, bullets and whatnot because our leadership are not leaders who say, hey, you know what? We need to look at the logistics we have X amount of bullets, X amount of missiles. Our production capacity is such and such. We can only produce this much. And now we're realizing we're not an industrial power. We're nothing. And the only thing we have is our nukes. And here's the crazy part. Our Trident three missiles are made and, and entered service in 1973. Okay? One of my closest buddies that I used to talk to for a long time, and he retired, God bless him, he was in the, on the nuclear forces side of things. And one of the things he told me is that everything, the way the United States maintains its nuclear forces, it's a run-to-failure mentality. The younger guys that are coming on board, they're, they're keeping track of our nuclear arsenal or maintaining it, so to speak, right, so it doesn't uh, become um, uh, 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 non-effective. They're just doing the bare, bare, bare minimum, okay? So it is a wonder if even 20% of our nuclear arsenal, quote-unquote, is even functioning. Let that be a detriment. This is why Putin says, before your missiles will even leave the silos, those who push the button will never find out if those missiles have even hit their target. Wow. That's the difference between a Mach 20, a Mach 10, 15, or Mach 20 hypersonic versus a 1973 Trident three you know trident two and a minuteman three missile there's no comparison the united states is three generations behind in missile technology in comparison to the russians they're at least a generation and a half behind the chinese that's how far behind the ball we are but you know what we're great at marketing bs we're wonderful at marketing bs yeah absolutely so 2023 gentlemen oh it's going to be rough for america man it's going to be rough for the much of the english-speaking world so Batten down the hatches, buckle up, and pucker up. Thank you, V, for that. Oh, Gentlemen, I want to thank you for a great uh, roundtable uh, discussion. We, uh, we're running short on time here, so we need, to, we need to close this out. 
uh, Martin, Alex, Matt, thank you so much. And V as well. Great round table today. Uh, let's do this. Let's plan something maybe perhaps uh, early uh, next year. So thank you yeah. for, for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks guys. Thank you. Bye. Thank you all for being on. God bless. Godspeed. God bless. Thank you, CJ.